think if I remember correctly, I was 21-ish. And at, at this point, I was already in undergrad studying for ministry and going through that process. And I was home on summer break, and the church that I grew up in invited me to, to preach. And I'm preaching this sermon. Um, it was a sermon out of Isaiah 61, one of my favorite passages. And I finished the first service, and I had walked off the platform and had a question for one of the guys who was uh, helping with the service that morning. And, and I went down to ask him a question. And as I'm asking the question, he stops me. And he goes, I saw your little circus act up there. And I, I was taken aback. And I just looked at him and I wasn't sure how to read him. He didn't have a smile on his face. And I realized he's making fun of me. And as a 21-year-old young preacher, I wasn't sure what to do with it. And my heart is kind of off and I've got one more service to preach. And it kind of just sunk the morning for me, if I'm honest. About a year and a half later, I graduated college and a a small country church had asked me to come and be their pastor. And I'm terrified. I mean, I'm 23. What what do I know about anything? And they're going to have me pastor their church. And and I'm nervous and I'm getting ready to make that transition that for me was a hard transition. And I'm at my home church again. And that that same guy comes up to me, right? And uh, we have this conversation. And he goes, so what are you doing after college? And I told him about this small country church. He goes, huh. They're going to let you pastor it, huh? And again, not a smile on his face. He goes, well, I guess they'll let anybody have a church these days. And and it was a moment, like, it wasn't just the sarcasm, it was the cynicism behind it, right? And this is someone I had known for a long time. And if I'm honest for you, in that moment, it sort of opened up a wound in my heart, right? And, And I stepped into the pulpit at that small country church, and in the back of my mind, as much as I didn't want it to be there, was that man's voice going, you're not called, they're just desperate, and I go, why? Why is that affecting me? Why? This, this guy, like, why is his voice the one in my head that's defining myself, my sense of call? Like, why? I, it wasn't that big a deal. It was an offhanded comment. And yet I couldn't let it go. And it opened up this place of insecurity, this place of woundedness for me, where every Sunday for the first year or so, as I got up to preach, I thought, how many people here think I'm just some weird circus performer ready to do my thing? And it adds no value. And I struggled with that. And as much as I tried to tell myself it wasn't a big deal, it affected me spiritually, it affected me mentally, it affected me emotionally. As it opened up that place of woundedness. And I think for all of us, we have these places of woundedness. Someone has said something or done something and it opens up this place in us of insecurity. It opens up this place in us of something that affects us. And and we try sometimes to tell ourselves, oh, well, this wasn't that big a deal. It shouldn't impact me. It shouldn't affect me. And yet that thing does affect us. And maybe it's a harsh word that somebody said. Maybe it's your relationship with your parents and, and your mom or dad said something and it stuck with you. Years later, you can recall that moment, that place, that word, that phrase that they said that still marks you. Maybe for others of us, it's been a moment of verbal or emotional or physical or sexual abuse that has shaped your life. And it continues to impact you mentally, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, even physically. And so we have these places of woundedness and brokenness. And the question is, what do we do with those? 
That's the journey I want to step into today. What do we do with those things, those moments? How do we respond to them? Because I think for many of us, as much as we would like to think they don't affect us, they still do. So let, let me summarize where we've been the last couple of weeks. Pastor Steve started walking us into this series, Good, Beautiful, and Kind, uh, is the book that it's based on, and the series is Becoming Whole. We're talking about how do we become whole people in Jesus Christ. So the biblical truth that we've looked at is that we are a broken, sinful people, and we're in need of Jesus, our Savior. And we're living in a world in which there's spiritual opposition. And, and so to summarize that, it's we live in a broken world. Right? Uh, Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 3. This, this is a stark descriptor of the world that we live in. Paul says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. I mean, what a, a stark description of a world that is far from Jesus. He uses word like rash, brutal, lovers of pleasure, lovers of themselves. We live in a world in which everyone is looking out for their own interests. It's the phrase in Latin that Steve used last week. We live life in curvitus in se. Life is collapsed in on itself and it's all about me. And when we live in a broken world, the reality is, is that we will all experience brokenness and woundedness from others. And so we've experienced these places of trauma. The word trauma simply comes from a Greek word that means wounding. We've experienced these trauma places, these wounding places that continue to impact us relationally, mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And the question is, what do we do with those? How do we begin to respond to those things? I want to introduce you to the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, we read this. There was a certain man from Ramitham, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerome, son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrificed to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk. And he said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. 
Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. So here's the story of of Hannah, who's married to a man named Elkanah. Elkanah has two wives. Hannah is one and, and Penina is the other. Now, the text tells us that Penina had been blessed to be able to have sons and daughters. And so she's been able to give Elkanah an heir. She's been able to give him children. But the text tells us that Hannah, the Lord, had closed her womb. Now, in in this culture, in the Old Testament times, your ability to bear children was considered a, a key mark of your identity as a woman. It would have been a place in this culture of great shame to not be able to give her husband an heir. And not only that, but there's this desire. Hannah desires to have children. Beyond the social stigma, Hannah is grieving in her heart this inability to have children that she so desires. And and what's interesting is that you you get a sense of this kind of broken family structure. Penina, who is this other wife, which already there's like the brokenness of that system of two wives. But Penina, it says, would provoke Hannah until she wept. There, there's just this sense of like mean-spiritedness that, that Penina would literally provoke her. That word to provoke means to stir up, to agitate. She would intentionally inflict pain on Hannah saying, oh, you, I mean, you can't have kids. Look, look at all my children for the purpose of creating a place of emotional damage in her. And as you watch this unfold, you watch this place of woundedness and Hannah and her response. It affects every aspect of her life, right? It, it affects her relationally. There's this sense of division. Do you notice that she calls Penina, who's part of this family system, she calls her her rival, right? They, they're to be a family. And yet there is, is someone that she considers a rival. They, they, they are at odds with each other. There's this sense of relational division in their family. Not only that, but look at how it has emotionally and mentally affected Hannah. In, in chapter 1, verse 7, or, or I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 8, she's downhearted, Elkanah says. In, in chapter 1, verse 10, it says, in her deep anguish. Not only is she in anguish, she's in deep anguish. And she says in verse 10, or in verse 11, she says, Lord, look on your servant's misery. Notice these stark descriptors. That she, I'm in deep anguish. Lord, look on my misery. In verse 15, she says, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. In verse 16, she says, I've been pay- praying here out of great anguish and grief. And this is a wounded place that for Hannah has affected her emotionally and relationally. It's affected her whole family dynamic. And, and notice too how it's affected her physically. In verse 6, it says that Penina provoked her until she couldn't even eat. She was in so much emotional anguish and spiritual turmoil that it made her physically sick to the point where she couldn't even eat. And, and you can see how it affected her spiritually. In verse 10 and verse 15, she's pouring out her soul to the Lord. She's crying out to God saying, God, would you remember my misery? As she attempts to navigate this place of woundedness and brokenness in her life. Now, some things I think we can observe from this story is where do our wounds come from? When you think about the places where you have been wounded or broken and offended and hurt, think about where those have come from. Often our wounds come through individuals. These are people in our lives. Sometimes this is, this is a parent who said something in a moment of anger or frustration, and yet that thing continues to live on in our mind. I can hear my father calling me this or my mother calling me that or my brother saying this. 
Sometimes it's a well-meaning person at church who says something or does something that hurts or wounds or offends. Or maybe it's someone that we didn't even know that said something to us and it has continued to mark us. But often our wounds come through people. For Hannah, it was Penina, who is her rival, who is, is purposely trying to inflict damage in her life. Sometimes our wounds come through institutions. These are the communities and the places that we're a part of. I mean, you don't have to look very hard. If you go Google church trauma, you can find all of the stories you want about church trauma. I grew up in a ministry family. I've been in the church uh, literally since before I was born. In utero, I was in church. We were in church all the time. I, I grew up in it. I could tell you story after story after story of church trauma, but they're not constructive and they're not helpful. And for years I wrestled, God, why is the church this place where we experience so much brokenness and so much woundedness? And I felt like God impressed on my heart. He said, Aaron, if you were going to work in the church, the church is not a community of perfect people. The church is a community of broken people who are pursuing Jesus. And if you want to work at the razor's edge of the brokenness of people, you can expect that you will be wounded. But it's a question of, am I developing a place of emotional, relational, and spiritual health to, to be the kind of person who in those moments of brokenness can offer grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness? That, that story that I opened with, that, that person that said those things to me that, that like made me wrestle with my ministry, a couple years later, I found out about some just absolutely horrific things that happened in their family. And it, and it didn't excuse the things that they said, and it didn't excuse the way that they treated me. But in the grace of God, where I was angry and where I was wounded and where I wanted to inflict a wound back, God opened my eyes and said, Aaron, they are so wounded. Can you offer compassion? And to be honest, I wrestled and I was like, God, I don't want to offer compassion to that person that wounded me. I don't want to show them grace. They don't get it. They don't understand it. And God said, no, you don't get it. You don't understand it. Yes, they wounded you. Yes, that was wrong. You do not get to return the favor. Do not give woundedness where woundedness was given to you. Offer grace and mercy and compassion. And church, that was a place of surrender. That was a place of saying, God, it's got to be you. You've got to grace me and empower me because I don't like them. And God said, it's okay that you don't like them yet. I want you to serve them. I don't want to serve them. I'm calling you to. And so where we have been hurt and wounded or offended, right? We want to make church the enemy. We want to make other people the enemy. We want to make our spouse the enemy. We want to make that person who did the thing the enemy. And I'm not saying we justify their actions. I'm not saying we make it right. But maybe God wants to also do a work of healing in their brokenness too. So our wounds come through individuals. Our wounds come through institutions, the communities that we're a part of. Often wounding comes through ideologies. These are the cultural beliefs and assumptions that we hold to that are contrary to scripture. Now in, in Hannah's life, in her culture, the ability or inability to bear children was considered a, a mark of her worth. She's living in a time and place in a culture where her inability to have children would have made her less than. People would have looked at Hannah and been, oh, I mean, she's not in God's favor. She hasn't been blessed with children. And Hannah carries around this wound of this cultural assumption and ideology that her worth is bound up in her ability or inability to bear children. 
And often, church, we, we are marked by these sort of cultural assumptions and beliefs about who we're supposed to be and what we should have achieved. And when we don't measure up to some of those things, we feel shame. And sometimes the culture that we're a part of picks up those narratives of culture and wants to, to reinforce those things. In, in the book, Good, Beautiful, and Kind, Rich Viotis tells this story where as a young child, his family was financially struggling and, and they used uh, public assistance to pay for a lot of their groceries. And his mom sent him down to the corner store uh, to, to buy groceries. And he, he pulls out the debit card that their food stamps were on. And he said, for whatever reason, the guy working at the store that day saw it fitting and to go, hey, hey, everybody, this kid's not paying with cash. He's using food stamps to pay. And in the book, as you read the story, Rich says he just, he felt flushed with shame, right? And it was the cultural narrative of you don't have wealth, you don't have influence, you don't matter, you don't measure up. You should be ashamed of using this form of payment. And it was a place that marked him, but it's all rooted in this cultural ideology that your worth is valued in your economic success or lack thereof. And we, all of us, we have these cultural stories that are not rooted in scripture that come to define us and, and, and to give shape to our identity. And so many of those are wounding and broken because our culture is wounded and broken. And so why would we let that wounded, broken culture tell us who we should be and what we should value? Now, what, what happens on the other side of those wounds is that wounding and trauma can result in us living out of a place of deception. And what I mean by that is we live in a place of untruth. We live with an identity rooted in a wounded place, not in the truth of Scripture. Scripture th- says things like, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I knit you together in your mother's womb. That you are a son and daughter of God. And yet we, we consistently live in these wounded places where that person said something or did something that makes us feel ashamed. And that's the thing that we let define us. And it's rooted not in truth, but in brokenness. Often too, have you noticed how trauma and wounding can result in, in division? Places of relational disconnect. I mean, when you look at Hannah's life, Right? She's living out of this place of deception on the one hand, like, I am less than because I have been unable to have children. But now there's this relational divide in her family where, where Penina is, is a rival. And, and even her husband, Elkanah, he, he doesn't totally get it. There's this relational brokenness moment where, where Elkanah looks at Hannah and he goes, Hannah, aren't I worth more to you than 10 sons? And, and you see, even Elkanah, he's wrestling with his own brokenness. He's asking Hannah, why can't I make you happy? And so there's this breakdown of the whole family as this place of woundedness brings in this divided sense of relationship. And church, I see this so often that in our places of brokenness, relational division creeps in and that person that has wounded us or broken us, we're angry at them. Maybe we even feel hatred towards them and it results in a divide that seeks to get wider and wider and wider. And not only is there deception and division, But often our places of woundedness and brokenness bring depersonalization. Pastor Steve talked about this a little bit last week, and I think it's true in our places of woundedness too. And this happens in two ways. One, when we've been wounded or broken, we depersonalize others. And and we start to make blanket statements and we say things like, well, all churchgoers are fill in the blank, hypocrites. All men do this, all women are. And, And we start to make these accusations. Everybody in authority And then we depersonalize others and we only see them as those who have wounded us. We stop seeing them as people. And and this image of what happens is so much less than what God wants for us as his people. And we cannot afford to stay in a place in which our woundedness and brokenness continues to define who we are. 
So here's the question, right? How do we begin to move towards health? How do we begin to move towards healing? Now, before we turn that direction, here's another challenge in the process. Is that you will encounter well-meaning people who don't understand. And, and, and this happens twice, right, for Hannah. Once in verse 8, her husband El- Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? And you can tell Elkanah means well, but you have to imagine this makes Hannah feel even worse. Like, Elkanah, it's, it's not about you, right? Yes, I'm happy with you, but my heart is broken. I'm grieving this dream to have children that hasn't come to fruition. That is hard, and Panina is provoking me. Elkanah, it's not about you. And yet this opens up a place of woundedness in Elkanah's life. He's thinking, why can't I make my wife happy? Why is she in such deep anguish? I want well for her, and he means well, but he doesn't understand. And and then you have Eli, right? When Hannah goes to the temple and she's crying out before God and she's in such anguish that as she's praying, she's praying silently and yet her lips are moving, right? As as, as she's sort of mouthing this prayer out loud. And Eli sees her and he goes, are you drunk? Put away your wine. And, And here's Hannah, right? She's in a place of anguish. She's in a place that she says where she's deeply troubled, and, and here's the person, the priest, who should be ministering to her, who says, are you drunk? He, he means well, but, but he misses the moment. In church, we're going to encounter people who mean well, but who don't understand. And they're going to try to say things. They're going to try to encourage. And it's going to come off wrong. And it's going to feel like, ah, that's not helpful. And in those moments, we have to be willing to extend grace and compassion. Even as we continue to move towards healing. So how, how do we respond in this, right? Let, let's, let's take a deep breath. How you doing? Are we all right? This is heavy this morning, isn't it? I feel it. You feel it? All right, let's turn towards hope. Are we ready? Let's do it. Because God does not leave us in our places of brokenness, right? God wants to move us towards healing and wholeness. So, so a couple of things. Number one, we need to be a people who bring our shame and our story before God with vulnerable honesty, Bring it before him with vulnerable honesty. I mean, Hannah does this. Notice what she does in in 1 Samuel 1 verse 10, right? It says, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. That is an honest prayer where she comes before God and it it is kind of bitter and she's weeping, but she's bringing it honestly and openly before him, right? Look at, look at verse 15. I'm a woman who has been deeply troubled. I've not been drinking. Listen to what she says. I've been pouring out my soul to the Lord. I I think that is a powerful descriptor. I'm pouring out my soul to the Lord. God, here is everything that's happening in me. I bring it before you. And, And I think church, so many of our prayers, we want them to be nice and neat and polite. And we feel like we've got to say all the right words. And yet here is Hannah. She is weeping bitterly and she is bringing before God in vulnerable honesty. Here are the things that I'm wrestling with. Listen to David in Psalm chapter six. Psalm chapter six, David says this. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish, right? Listen how David is describing his condition. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Right? Do you hear David? He, he is bringing before God his frustration. I'm tired of this place of suffering. Lord, why don't you bring salvation? David's angry. He's frustrated. And he brings that before God in vulnerable honesty. 
return, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. Do you hear David saying, I'm tired of the struggle? All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. David goes, I'm tired of the struggle. I'm tired of the opposition. Lord, I am worn out. And yet there's something I think so beautiful about David's raw honesty before God. And I think, church, this does a couple things for us. One, there's something deeply confessional when I bring my struggles before God. That, that, that first year, that, that small country church, that was a really hard year for me. I was young. I, I'm learning. I don't really know what I'm doing. And it was literally the church and the house and nothing else. Like, it was middle of nowhere. Like, I had to drive to get to the middle of nowhere, right? That's how far away this place was. And I was lonely. And in the back of my mind, I hear that person's voice. They'll let anyone pass your church. You're not called. They're just desperate because nobody else wanted to come here. And in moments of honest prayer, when I said out loud before God, God, I'm lonely. I'm tired. As I started to say those things out loud in prayer, they stopped having as much power over me. I invited God and God's truth into the midst of those things, right? And it felt shameful to say I'm lonely because I felt like, well, I, I'm not lonely, right? Like, I, that, that feels hard to say. And so sometimes we let ourselves stay rooted in shame. We let ourselves stay rooted in the brokenness. But as we say it out loud before God, there's this confessional moment that invites God's grace and God's presence intentionally into those places. And not only that, but it helps us process what am I thinking and what am I feeling? What's going on in my life? Because here's the other thing, church. The second point of response is recognizes that God promises healing and he is present with us in our suffering. The, the truth of God's word is that he promises to bring healing if we'll surrender and submit our life to him. Listen to Isaiah 61. It says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow in them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise in place of a spirit of despair. They, those same people who are broken, will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Jesus, in Luke chapter four, when he stands up in the synagogue, he reads this passage and Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of this very passage. And so Jesus says, I come to bind up your wounds. I come to bring healing. I come to bring you towards the wholeness that God calls us to. And the beauty of the gospel is not just spiritual forgiveness and the, the freedom from our sin, which is amazing. And it's beyond my ability to comprehend God's grace in that. But he also invites us into a place where God wants to bind up our broken hearts. I, I, I love this image in Revelation 21, where it says, at the end of all things, God says, my dwelling will be with my people and I will wipe the tears from their eyes and there will be no more sorrow or mourning for the old order of things has passed away. And we can experience now in part what we'll know in full when Jesus returns that even now God desires to attend to our places of brokenness. I love, I'm going to skip to uh, Psalm 34, 18. Psalm 34, 18 says this, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. 
I love that. That in our place of woundedness and brokenness and shame, that place where we feel crushed in spirit, God says, I'm especially close. And I will save those who are crushed in spirit. So bring your shame, your story before God with vulnerable honesty. Recognizes that God desires to bring healing. Third, I think it's important in the middle of this to care for ourselves physically. Notice Hannah's story, right? In in verse seven, she's so in deep anguish and so sick that she can't eat. But notice what happens in verse 15. After she prays and she has this conversation with Eli, she says, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something. Right? Uh, Rich Viotis in his book, Good, Beautiful, and Kind, he, he says this. He says at their church, at, uh, their church is called New Life. He says, we use this phrase that our bodies are major prophets, not minor ones. And what he means is there are things that, that we feel in our body, right? We're created body, soul, mind. We're integrated people. That's how God designed and created us. And sometimes that anxiousness, that depression, that, that anxiety, that stress, that tension that we feel is indicative of some of the, 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 the woundedness that we've been walking in. And for Hannah, there's this moment where she is in such deep anguish and she's so sick that she can't even eat. And as she pours out her soul before God, there's this moment where she goes, I'm, I'm hungry. And, and there's this moment where she becomes aware of her own physical needs again. She's in tune with her own body again. And she, and she goes and she gets something to eat. And, and sometimes in the middle of our brokenness and our woundedness and our shame, we become so unself-aware. Care for your whole self. Steward our bodies well, even in the midst of that. Fourth, there is a redemptive purpose for our trauma and wounding. Let, let me draw our attention back again to Isaiah 61. In Isaiah 61 verse 4 says this. They, those same people who were brokenhearted, that God is binding up, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. And what I think is so fascinating about this is as the people of Israel find healing, God says, now in your place of healing, as I have bound up your broken hearts, I now invite you to be a part of the process of healing and restoration and rebuilding. And what I love, church, is that with God, nothing is ever wasted. Though places where we have been broken and wounded, as God binds those up, as he brings healing and wholeness and redemption and restoration, God invites us to be a part of being a healing presence in the life of another, that we can become a conduit, a means of God's grace in the life of another person. And what I love about that is that our suffering is never wasted, that you have a unique story of God's purpose and redemption being brought to fulfillment in your life through the grace of Jesus Christ. And your story of redemption in Jesus is going to have profound impact on somebody else who identifies in a similar way with what you've been through. And you might have an opportunity to speak the truth of the gospel into the life of another person in a way that nobody else can. And God invites us, maybe it's it's even our families, to go back into places that are broken and devastated and to be a healing presence of Jesus Christ. Finally, Jesus speaks a new word of truthful identity over his people. I want to close with this. Mark chapter 5. A large crowd followed Jesus and pressed around him. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. 
Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized the power had gone out from him, and he turned around and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened uh, to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. This, this story, I, I find fascinating. Here's this woman. She'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Now, because of the nature of her bleeding, she would have been unable to worship in the temple. She is, uh, in the Jewish culture, would have been considered unclean. Now, because of that, if you came into contact with her, you likewise would be considered unclean, and you would not have been able to worship in the temple until you wa- uh, walked through a, a process of ritual cleansing. So it's likely that in in public places, this woman would have had to let people know, I'm unclean. I am unclean. For 12 years, she has lived like this, socially and relationally disconnected from people because she was perpetually unclean in the Jewish culture. Not only has, has she been relationally isolated, she's been economically ruined. Did you notice that she spent everything she had and yet she continued to get worse? And this is a woman who is in a place of desperation, right? And she reaches out. If I can just reach out to Jesus and she touches the hem of his garment and she's healed. Now, in my mind, I go, that's amazing. That's enough. And yet Jesus stops and he asks what feels like a preposterous question. He goes, who touched me? And, And the streets are crowded. I mean, literally it's shoulder to shoulder. Everybody's bumping into Jesus and the disciples are like, are you kidding Everybody touched you. Like everybody's bumping into you. Why, why, why do you care? Did, did you ever stop to ask, why does Jesus concern himself with who touched him? Why ask the question? And, and notice this woman's posture. She comes and, and it says she's trembling, right? She's shaking with fear. Is this te- I mean, she's unclean and she just touched a respected rabbi. Is he going to chastise her? What, what is he going to do? And she's trembling with fear and she's in a place of woundedness and brokenness and shame. She's been unclean for 12 years. This is a very vulnerable moment for her. And Jesus looks at her. And do you notice the language that he uses? He says, daughter. That is a word of relational connection. That is a word of value. That is a word. This woman who has not experienced physical touch in likely in 12 years, the Messiah Jesus looks at her and he says, you're a daughter. I love you. You belong. You have value. You have worth. And when he says go in peace, the Hebrew concept of peace, the Hebrew word is shalom. It literally means the wholeness of God. It's not just may you go with a sense of tranquility. It's no, may you go in the abiding wholeness and presence of God. He says, daughter, go in shalom and be freed from your suffering. And I think Jesus asked who touched him because he wanted that moment of relational connection with this woman who had not been relationally connected with in 12 years. And the healing is not just physical. I think Jesus does something emotionally, spiritually in that moment as well. So I pray, church, that in our places of brokenness and woundedness, would we reach out for Jesus? And may we live rooted in the truth of who he has called us to be, that we are his sons, that we are his daughters, that that defines our identity, our value, and our worth.
As we close this morning, the band is going to lead us in a moment of worship uh, with this song called Graves into Gardens. And it's all about God's ability to bring things that are dead back to life. And so maybe there's a place of woundedness or brokenness in you, a place that feels like there's no hope. As we sing the song, let this be a moment of response to say, God, would you bring healing and restoration in this place in this way? And, and if you need someone to talk to, uh, Kyle will mention this afterwards, but we have a prayer team that would love to pray with you, to pray for you. If you want to talk to a member of the pastoral team or, or, or part of our team that, of people that we've trained uh, to help walk through these kinds of moments, um, you can reach out to Pastor Serenity, who's on our community life team, and she's got other resources that she can get you connected with as well. But let, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, who you are and the truth of your word that you are near to the brokenhearted and that you save those who are crushed in spirit. And so I pray, Lord, this morning that as we've had this conversation about places of woundedness and brokenness, as we, as we walk through Hannah's story, God, maybe there's somebody here right now who is, they remembered that moment where the thing was said to them or the thing was, was done to them or that thing happened. And God, it's hard and it feels heavy and it feels weighty and it feels like something they can't be freed from. God, I pray that right now in this moment that they would sense your presence, that they would sense your nearness. God, would you bring freedom where freedom is needed, where we are bound to living in the deception of what woundedness tells us that we are. I'm a loser. I don't matter. I'm less than. Whatever those things are, God, would you bring freedom from those things? And may we be rooted in the truth of who you declare us to be, that we are your sons, that we are your daughters, if we'll receive you in faith. So Father, would you bring healing where healing is needed? Lord, would you turn our graves into gardens? Would you bring new life and redemption and restoration and reconciliation? May we take a step towards healing and wholeness in you today. We love you, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.